0: And my ruling desire is to dispose of so much of my property in a manner that shall do the greatest good. I want to change the world. I want everybody to know the fundamental idea in all of life science so that we can move forward together. A Cornell education has always been designed to teach much more than the knowledge our students will need to succeed in their careers. It's designed to teach them how to live and thrive in a changing world.
1: October 2022, Cornell launched a fundraising campaign titled "To Do the Greatest Good," um, based on a line from Ezra Cornell's journal. That in those clips you just heard from a promo video was read by Ezra Cornell's great 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 grandson, also named Ezra Cornell. There were also quotes in there from Bill Nye and current president Martha Pollack. And they're all getting at this idea that Cornell doesn't just care about professional credentials and money and the endowment but it cares about the greatest good. Um, and there's, there's these banners on Feeney Way that say, Cornellians are united for a shared purpose, presumably to, to achieve this greatest good or to at least work towards it. In this season of Clara Talks, we're going to look at that and we're going to ask questions about it. Like, what does Cornell actually think the greatest good is? And what do people at Cornell think the greatest good is? And what do we do if those things don't line up? I'm Jacob Brogdon, welcome to season three, The Greatest Good. Thanks for being here, it's gonna be a lot of fun. This is Clara Talks, a podcast of Christian Thought at Cornell University. It's October 15th, 1997, outside Sage Hall on Cornell's Ithaca campus. There's a crowd here gathered because they're taking out the cornerstone, and in it is a letter from Ezra Cornell where he sets out his biggest worry for the university. And everyone's expecting it to be about one thing.
0: Everyone assumed he was writing about co-education because Sage Hall was being built as the women's residence hall. This was a controversial thing. Cornell is one of the first fully coeducational institutions, certainly within the the East, and within our Ivy League peers. And so that was the the topic of discussion. So for a hundred years, everyone just assumed like, oh, there's this letter in there about how admitting women might put Cornell in a precarious situation.
1: But that's not what they found in the letter. Instead, they found a warning about what Ezra Cornell called sectarianism and religion. The voice that you heard was Corey Ryan Earl. He's the university's unofficial historian, and he teaches one among many of Cornell's must-take classes called the First American University. It's a one-credit class, and among students who take it, uh, they know it as Stories with Corey because of how well he tells these stories of the people involved in Cornell's founding and how Cornell got here. I asked him more about Cornell's founding values, what exactly was in that letter, and what that means for us today. In my time at Cornell, I've noticed two broad themes um, of the founding values of Cornell um, that, that have been pushed uh, through various like promotional materials and uh, historical signs on campus and everything like that. Um, and one of them is, is egalitarianism. Um, the idea that, that Cornell was founded on equity and structural justice, and that these are things that have been laced through Cornell's history, um, and that it, it, was uniquely, it was uniquely founded on that. Um, and the other is this secularism, um, that Cornell was founded not as a religious institution as many of its peer institutions were, but that Cornell was founded um, as something that would be separate from the church, and that wouldn't have... Uh, any strong ties to the church. So I was wondering how accurate uh, this depiction is that it's been portrayed uh, for both of these themes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think Cornell's founding values and founding ethos are something that we should be proud of and and really do go back to the founders vision for the university this motto of any person in any study they they really meant it i think if you go and look at their correspondence and and you know the things that they actually said and did at the time it's not just a story that we tell ourselves today you know it's not just a founding myth there are elements of it that i think can be exaggerated or have been, you know, have evolved over time. But the founding, you know, statement of the of any person in particular, this idea of of making education accessible to all, I think Ezra Cornell and Andrew Dixon White truly meant that. And you can can see different ways that they they you know expressed it during their lifetimes. Um and different letters that they wrote where you know they're talking about gender, they're talking about race, they're talking about religion you know nationality socioeconomic status i think on those five elements in particular it's really clear that the founders meant what they were saying it wasn't just a, a sort of you know brand or you know marketing tactic
1: yeah for sure i think it's also important to point out that cornell's values even though they were they were there at the start um weren't uniformly instituted over time Right. And I was wondering, um, like how especially Cornell was founded in 1865, well before the civil rights movement, before suffrage. Um, I was wondering how these these values ended up playing themselves out in, in equity of admission in the student body among administration uh, from founding uh, all the way up to present day.
0: Yeah, and the treatment of of women or students of color has has certainly changed, too. And so one way I like to frame it is, is sort of this question of diversity versus inclusion. From the start, Cornell was more diverse than its peer institutions. You know, certainly, within the Ivy League, we you know admit the first women in 1870. The you know, we open in 1868, so that's two years after opening. First students of color in Cornell's second year. You know, the first student of, of African descent is in 1869, uh, so a year after we open, and so you do see you know, Cornell being more diverse, being more accessible than than other institutions. You know, there was a Jewish student in the entering class uh, at a time when that was uncommon in, in higher education, too. But that doesn't mean necessarily that they felt included by their peers, by the faculty, by the institution. And so you do see struggles with, with that element of inclusion, even if Cornell is succeeding on the diversity part. For instance, women in the early years, really the early decades, were mistreated by the, the male students. They really opposed the fact that Cornell was co-educational and many of the, the male students and you know women were forced to sort of sit together in the front of the classroom and men would ignore them you know they weren't included in a lot of student organizations and events and things and so they really had kind of a separate experience even if they were welcomed at Cornell and able to take any classes and so you you see that play out with some of these these elements you know so so I think that's an important thing to remember that we weren't just a you know, happy, welcoming place where everyone was was feeling accepted.
1: Yeah, I've definitely seen from my own time at Cornell how diversity can exist um, as it does here without inclusion a lot of the time, even today. So going back to the, the letter that was in the Sage Cornerstone, was Ezra Cornell's concern in any way related to this. What exactly was he talking about there? We eventually get to open that letter
0: in the late 1990s when Sage Hall is is basically gutted and renovated for the the business school when Johnson moves in in the late 90s. And so the decision was made, let's open this this cornerstone and see what the letter says. And the letter was about sectarian strife and, and Ezra saying that he fears the biggest challenge for education is sectarian strife and conflict because of religion. Uh, and And he makes a really strong statement about how Cornell's door should be remain open to all regardless of creed uh, and he mentions gender as well in the letter, but the focus is really on on making sure we're inclusive in terms of religion.
1: yeah, that's really interesting to me as someone who's involved in religious communities on campus. A lot of what I've heard about the founders' opinions on religion is that they were just super anti religion um and basically they were god-haters. A.D. White had this conflict thesis that said you had to either pick science or religion, um, and this is kind of the the story that's been told to me. So it sounds like that's not the most accurate.
0: Yeah, I think part of the founding myth of Cornell is, is around this idea of non-sectarianism and, and sort of this reputation of, of being a godless institution and you know, the heathens on the hill or, or whatever nicknames people came up with. And, and I think it's it's not an accurate depiction of how Cornell and White felt about religion. I think if you were to ask them, they would say they were were Christian men. They were religious men. that that they weren't anti-religion. And there are some statements throughout their lives. I mean, Ezra was born into a Quaker family. His Quaker values absolutely shaped his his beliefs and sort of the founding values of Cornell. You know, gender equity being a key one within in the Quaker faith, but also, you know, practicality and utility and, and things like that. Simplicity. White was born into an Episcopalian family, and his... His beliefs on religion, I think, are a little more complicated and, and murky. He wasn't a regular churchgoer, and he got criticism for that when he becomes president of, of Cornell. It was uncommon for a president of a university not to be a religious figure. Most were members of the clergy at the time. And so already he was going to get some criticism. And then it was you know, revealed that, well, he doesn't go to church regularly. He's anti-religion. Ezra ends up having a challenge with organized religion because he marries outside the faith. And so his church basically kicks him out for not marrying a Quaker woman. And so that's the beginning of Ezra's frustration with organized religion, dictating how people live their lives. And I think shaped his, his thoughts on making sure Cornell was, was non-sectarian white. I think, you know, it's a little more nuanced. I think he saw religion dictating what was being taught in curriculums in curricula at, you know, at Yale university where he graduated from, he thought that religion played too much of a role in, and he thought religion was hindering science. You know, there are examples throughout history where he saw that conflict of science and Christianity, this conflict thesis idea. And, and so I think there's an element of that with White's concern on organized religion, controlling what people learn and and the, the sort of advancement of of scientific thought. And, and White doesn't build a chapel, for instance, when Cornell is, is first opened. You know, that wasn't a priority for him. You see that sort of... You know, thing coming out in some of the early planning for Cornell, he eventually does once a trustee gives the money and sort of pressures for for Sage Chapel to be, able, be built. So it is one of the earliest buildings, but it it takes some time. But I do think you know White White often said he was was religious. He wasn't anti religion. He I think the the word non sectarian today we interpret differently than how they used it, and they really used it to refer to Christianity and different sects within Christianity. And so even if you look at the founding speeches when Cornell University opens, both Ezra Cornell and Andrew Dixon White refer to Cornell University as a Christian institution in their opening remarks. And so it's clear that That they didn't see it as a non-religious or anti-religious institution. It was a good Christian institution, but they wanted it to not deal with sectarian strife. They wanted, you know, Protestants and Methodists and Episcopalians and, you know, different faiths within Christianity to be welcome, which was not the case. You know, at the time, sectarian strife was a more serious or more prominent, you know, part of, of society, I guess. So I do think today we think of non-sectarian as any religion and all religions and no religion when back then they were really using it more about Christianity. And and so I think they were more supportive of Christianity than we think of them today. And you can look at the chapel. I mean, Sage Chapel is a non-sectarian chapel, but it's full of Christian imagery. I mean, the, yeah. the decoration is clearly Christian in nature. We did have Jewish speakers there early on and, and speakers of different faiths. Uh, and it was a non-compulsory chapel, which is something White was proud of. Other institutions mandated students go to chapel services. So it was unique in many ways. We had a rotating chaplaincy that brought in all different speakers instead of a campus chaplain. But it, it was more, more, more of a Christian university than, than I think people realize.
1: Definitely an interesting contrast there. Um, and of course, higher education as a whole... Has secularized um, as history has gone on. Um, most of the Ivy League schools were founded as religious. So I was wondering, as time has gone on and the secularization process has happened among these institutions, how Cornell's secularization has um, differed from from these schools. Um, if it's sped up, um, if it's been relatively faster than these schools, or if maybe because it started at a different point, that it it, it took a slower path. Um, through the secularization, what was the the dynamic there?
0: I do think we we were on a faster journey or sort of ahead of the 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 crowd in terms of of secular universities. I mean, there's some some conjecture that White used the word non-sectarian simply because secular would be more controversial at the time. And yeah. so he was trying to frame it as like, we're we're a secular university, but I'm gonna call it non-sectarian just so we can say we're a Christian university and, and it doesn't feel quite as anti-religious. And and it's true that other universities sort of caught up to Cornell and began accepting people of different faiths. And you know, now that's that's really the norm in higher education that, that universities aren't seen as having a, a religious influence, or, or you know, most of them aren't. But from the start, I think that was more of the vibe at Cornell. One way you can see that is there are early documents that are called these class statistics, where they would, you know, publish a list of all 200 members of the graduating class, and, and, you know, how tall are you, and where are you from, and what are you studying, but they would also ask about religion, and very early on in these documents, you can see students would list none, or they would write heathen as a joke sort of thing, or they would just leave the question blank, and, and so I think that is indicative of of Cornell being more inclusive on a religious perspective than than other institutions if you were at Harvard Yale Princeton and you wrote heathen on an official document or identified as a heathen on some university document my guess is that would not go over well that you probably would be be kicked out of those institutions so the fact that at Cornell you could do that i think that speaks to us being being ahead of the game even if we were still identifying you know as a Christian institution by the founders that I wasn't the reputation early on, just because we got all these attacks by clergymen as a an anti-religious institution. And that was one of the reasons Henry Sage wanted a chapel to be built. He's like, hey, we're, we have this reputation as being anti-religion. We need to show that we're just open to any religion or any sect within Christianity. That was probably what he was thinking. And, and so dealing with the reputation versus the reality, I guess, is something that still... Still is an issue today. We have this, this founding myth that is pretty widespread that we were anti-religion, but I think it's it's less of the
1: reality. A quote that we come back to a lot here at Claritas is T. S. Eliot's framework that, that Christians should be educated to think in Christian categories instead of simply aiming towards being pious people or the most religious people that you could be. Um, And he wrote this in a series of essays on Christianity and culture. Um, And in it, he talks about the relationship between Christians and institutions in a secular culture. And essentially his argument is that Christians should be aiming towards a Christian organization of society in which these Christian categories that we're supposed to be thinking in are ingrained into how the institutions in the society function. He says that this would be a society in which the natural end of man, which is virtue and well being and community, is acknowledged for all, and the supernatural end, which is beatitude, for those who have the eyes to see it. Cornell, of course, is a human institution. It's a secular human institution. And as such, it will always imperfectly carry out um, the justice that would be found in God's order. But seeing these values of inclusion, however imperfectly carried out and however wrongly based at the founding of Cornell, certainly can give us hope that this school is moving towards something that can produce this natural end of man, virtue and well-being in community for all. Thanks for listening to Clara Talks. Um, make sure you follow the podcast on your Spotify app. You subscribe on your podcast app. Um, and follow us on Instagram, Cornell Claritas. Um, might be some sneak peeks coming up on there. And you also get to see all of our wonderful written content um, from staff writers and student contributors all through our organization. Um, thanks so much for listening. I'll see you for episode two.